Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. What happens when a person hears the tolling of the bell that still hangs in the ruins of San Sepulcre? M.P. Scheel. Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. The monthly donation really helps us to create a support flow we can count on. If you can step up with $5 a month, that really helps us out. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. You'll get a monthly thank you code for any digital download. It's a great deal and a great feeling. Thank you so much. You can also purchase t-shirts and stuff at our merchandise store. And check out the hybrid audiobook, the audiobook that's embedded into a printed book that I've invented and patented. Links can be found in the episode's details. And for those of you with the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Just enough to wet your whistle. In the app, tap on the box with a bow on the left when you play the episode. That's the special features area. I hope you like it. Today we finish our journey into the purveyors of the ghost story. Next week, we will begin a multi-part series of The Hand of Fu Manchu, book three in the Fu Manchu series by Sax Romer. I tell you this now, so you can get caught up if you need to, and listen to the first two books. For a limited time, I have priced both The Insidious Dr. Fu Manchu and The Return of Fu Manchu, at $7.99 each, so you can use a coupon code to pick them up if you haven't already done so. In case you can't tell, I'm a little under the weather this week, but fear not, I have another short story I recorded earlier from MP Shield, which will fit the bill nicely. Thank you for your patience. And now, The Bell of Saint Sepulcre by MP Shield. It was during my tramp through Provence three summers ago that I came one evening to Le Bern les Bruyères, a hamlet near the bottom of the Baison Valley. Here I found the inn so poor that I resolved to tramp on to Cognac, four miles off. But, said an old vigneron, whom I asked to put me on the path through the forest, you should go round about by the road. Why? I asked him. That means another kilometer. We of these parts hardly use the path now, was his answer. Don't you go that way, with a certain earnestness and admonition. What, wolves about here? I asked him. He lowered his voice to say, You may see someone named La Mère Gouvillon, as if to say, You may see Beelzebub. I suppose that he meant a ghost, and as I knew something of southern superstitiousness, and was in a hurry, I handed him a franc and went on by the forest path. I found it, in some parts, choked with bush, 
myrtle, kerm's oak, which I had to part before me, and by the moonshine above the bush I saw in that short distance two of those mounds named barrows, placed there by the fairies. Then, when I had tramped three kilometers through a rather intolerable solitude, the shock came. Three meters to my left, within a sort of clearing, I saw the woman. She was seated on a fragment of one of those rocks they call menhirs. I had the impression in the hazy moonshine that she was moving her shoulders slowly from side to side, her hands supporting her jaw, some grace in the fall of her rag suggesting a statue set on a pedestal. Her stature, I could see, was gigantic. Her great arms like clubs, her great bosom and spread of shoulder, her mouth open in a cavern of darkness that looked oblong, her hair black and gray, a tangle of snakes, and as I walked past, her eyes followed me with that kind of gaze with which an ox stops cropping to gaze after a passer. The image of this woman filled my mind until I got to Karnak, near nine, and that same night, while sitting in an inn-garden with swings, nine-pins, arbors, I was told by my host the story of La Mère Gouvillon. She came, he told me, of a well-to-do family, who owned land on the far side of Le brun le brière her father being a mighty big man, known as a hard bargainer as far as Avignon and Orange, and in Le brun everybody feared him, even the curé, for it was said that he did not believe in the good God. He drank half a litre of cognac every night, so that one could hear him marching up and down his veranda to a late hour, quarrelling with nobody, and carrying on, Terrible he was when the drink had him, like a man mad with sunstroke. And one summer, when the phylloxera had rotted his vine leaves, and things were looking bad for harvest, on an awful night long remembered he raised his hand, defied the heavens to do their worst, and challenged the bell of Saint-Sepulcre to ring in his hearing, for the bell was said to be a little audible from his yard. His wife ran to hide under a bed, dreading the bell toll. His daughter Maud herself trembled. Some had it to say that the bell did ring in his hearing. However that was, he perished shortly afterwards in convulsions, and was buried without the blessing of the church. Soon after him his good woman also passed away, and Maud Gouvignon was left mistress of all. And now things began to look alive indeed, if the patch of yellowish moss appeared on all the vines of the parish, Maud Gouvignon's trellises were still green. Maud's spray and pruning scissors should no doubt have accounted for this prosperity. But there were those who thought of black magic, when the mulberry disease and the failure of the madder crop, which were the cry all round, seemed to keep clear of her fields. The truth was that her man roiled for her with the consciousness of her hard eyes behind them, for she was more masterful than any man, and moreover she covered her land with a newfangled sort of sandy stuff from Marseille, so that the next vintage sixty barrels of light wine rolled off in her car to Avignon 
as against Le Père Gouvignon's maximum of fifty-three. Meanwhile, no one could stand the sight of her passions. If anything went wrong, as when she threw big Huguenot, the blacksmith, down some stairs for laming a mule in shoeing. In Le Brun Le Bruyère, the curé called silence at anyone who mentioned her name. She had not once been inside the church door since her father's death. But one Sunday morning, she being about thirty-five, Maud, to everyone's astonishment, turned up in the little church in the valley. Never, said my landlord, was seen such finery, rings and ribbons, though Maud was ordinarily slatternly in dress, and she carried her head high, as though the church was not good enough for her feet, while the curé stammered and changed colour. And why do you think she did this? It was a preliminary to coming out as a married woman. For she was about to marry the little Tomberel, the shoemaker, as was soon known. And there was a great whispering and excitement then, for everyone knew that no one would have wished to marry Maud, rich as she was, a woman whose own father, as report said, had heard the bell, so that Maud must have fixed upon the little Tomberel for her own reasons, and done her own wooing. But which bell is it, I asked, that you keep speaking of? He looked astonished. Well, I should have thought that even a stranger, I mean, uh, do I not? The bell of San Sepulcre. And what does this bell do? I asked him. It is a sound which one should not hear, he answered with a frown. It is believed to bring, well, I could not tell you, evil upon those who hear it. He was silent. Then, but talking of this poor little Tomberel, everyone pitied him. It is said that on his taking a pair of sabots to the presbytere, the priest admonished him to trust to the saints for protection from the evil one. And in saying this, he was supposed to throw a scone at Mont Gouvillon. A week before the civil marriage, Tomberel ran away to Casale. But Maud followed him, and it was said knocked him down with a box. So they came back together and were married. Soon afterwards, Maud gave birth to her son Pierre. As for the poor Tomberel, he did not survive his marriage three months. This Pierre grew up a sickly pale lad, but the uglier everyone thought him, the prouder his mother was of him. He was everything to her. She went foolish with love only to look at him. He was a cripple with a disease of the hip joint, and three times a week for years his mother took him over to La Risolette to be seen to. When the doctor told her that the child could not possibly live, she only laughed and said the man was a fool who did not know his business, and live it did. But Pierre had a mental disease as well his crazy craving for blood. For to sling a pebble from a catapult into the eye of a pig was his delight. At thirteen, he was the death of a little girl, and later on was discovered with a cut that he had made in his own neck. His mother slung him to her shoulder that day, with that square opening of the mouth, which was her way in her agitations, and ran to La Risolette with the dead weight not wanting for a cart. It was the feet of a horse. 
Such, then, was Pierre. The children shrank from contact with him, and it got to be a prophecy in the village that the day would come when the bell of Saint-Sépulcre would sound upon the ears of Maud Gouvillon's son. But, said mine host, in a patois whose quaintness I despair of quite conveying, whatever he did, if he stuck a calf, or half killed a child, or laid down all day fuddled by the roadside, his mother still laughed and petted him. This only made her love him the more proudly and the more loudly. She was foolish with her love. Pierre, he went on, was sweet on Rosalie Tissot, granddaughter of Tissot, the schoolmaster, the prettiest golden-haired fairy that ever was, engaged to be married to Martin de Joyeux, who was a carpenter at La Rizolette. Pierre lay in wait for her everywhere, with a patience which was strange for him, but she laughed at his shrunken form, with a derision in which there was ever more terror than laughter. Knowing how cruelly he loved her, hardly knowing perhaps what a peril lay in her laughter. When the date of her marriage with Martin de Joy came near, Pierre went and threw himself at his mother's knees in a room where she sat shelling peas, saying to her mother, I shall go and kill myself, for I am the laughing stock of the place, because I am not like the others. And if I do not have Rosalie, they will laugh at me more. Now his mother's heart was like a harp to him. He knew that to tell her of the folks laughing was to lash her into a scratching cat. And, wait, Pierre, says she now, over her peas, quite quietly. Wait, my son, you shall marry this girl. That same night, when the village was asleep, Mother Gouvillon wrapped her head up and came down upon Tissot's cottage near the church. Tissot nearly dropping dead with fright when he hobbled from bed in his red-wool nightcap and saw her standing there, so big that she had to bend her body to get in. Well, she offered everything for Rosalie. Eight thousand francs at the Crédit at Avignon. The olives, the two presses, the stock and plant, all should be Pierre's and Rosalie's. And meantime, old Tissot sat shivering, hands on knees, not knowing what to say. At last he stammers that Rosalie would not consent, since her marriage with Martin de Joyy was a marriage of love. Rosalie is only a child, says la mère Gouvillon. Leave her to me. Well, well, says Tissot. So mother Gouvillon returned home satisfied. If only matters had rested there. But she had hardly gone when Tissot woke up his grandson and sent him with a note to tell Martin de Joy to be sure to come over to Lebrun the next morning. So Martin de Joy came, but on coming, he put his head in at the school door. The children saw him, and two hours later, Mother Gouvignon knew all about that meeting. The two men had a confabulation together. Tissot declaring that the only way was for Martin to carry off Rosalie secretly to Avignon the night before the ten days' notice was up, and marry her there. But it was no secret in the village that three of the days were already gone, and the silly old man did not stop to consider that Mother Gouvignon 
would surely know when the ten days would expire. As a matter of fact, she had no sooner heard of that interview between Tissot and Desjoyers than she knew perfectly well what had been settled. It is said in La Brune Le Bruyère that she sent a message that same evening to Joyer, asking him to come and talk the matter over with her. But that Joyer would not even receive the message. If this is true, it was the last attempt made by La Mère Gouvignon to change de Joyer's mind in his scheme to outwit her. At eleven, then, in the night preceding that tenth day of notice, Martin de Joyer, a tall, active chap, was crossing the moor between La Rizolette and Le Brun Le Bruyère, the moor on which stands Saint Sepulcre. He was coming to meet Rosalie, who, with Tissot's old gouvernante, was waiting for him in a cart behind the Presbyter Wood to be off with him to Avignon, and he was taking the shortest road to her. The people coming from La Rizolette to Le Brun usually make a detour to avoid the moor, so desolate is its barren expanse, on which grows only vine stumps and some lavender shrubs, with here or there a miasmic clare or pool, or a cypress standing out blighted against the sky, or a gang of those black rocks having hollows that the Provençals call cañards. Overall, northwest winds draw along volumes of a white dust, wide-winged, there being often mistral over the moor when the valleys lie tranquil. At one part of this Dead Sea border of Provence stands, where it has stood since the time of the Franks, the ruins of Saint-Sepulcre, choked now with brambles, hiding behind the strange rankness of vegetation. But the belfry remains broken, and they say the bell-rope and the bell. I will not delay to tell you the ancient tale of Baal which gave to this bell its awesomeness among all those glens. But for the poor wretch who hears its tone, life is practically over, heart fails and brain. This throughout a district of sceptical France, extending from beyond Le Brun Le Bruyere, quite on, I believe, to Houdin. The hearer of the bell is accursed. What he sets about shall fail and shall rebound with tribulation upon his head. If he be not instantly struck down, his life will still be poisoned. The air will hurt him. Water will burn him. His blessedness will be in death. On the night when Martin de Joyer started out for Rosalie from La Rizolette, the mist on the moor was luminous with moonlight, and only a little wind moved so that Mother Gouvillon could see some distance from the church step, where she stood hidden with the mass of sarsaparilla and kermzoaks that choked the church portal. For many years no foot had ventured so near Saint-Sepulcre as hers this night, and she drank brandy from a vial to keep her defiance bright in her brain, all that I am telling you now being only what la mère Gouvillon herself revealed long afterwards and every word's true. She had groped to see if the bell-rope was still there, intending, if not, to drag herself up like a cat to get at the bell. But the rope was there, still pretty strong, though rotted. She could see a little by the rays of moonlight that came through the ruins. And now she stood, 
peering between the bushes at the footpath over the moor, waiting for Martin de Joyy to appear. For she understood that with such a business in hand, he would not make a detour around Saint-Pierre, but would come over the moor. At last, near eleven, a sound of someone whistling reached her, for Martin did not like to be passing so near the bell, so was whistling to himself for company. And at once Mother Gouvion set to work, first plugging up her ears with cotton wool, and over this a bandage, her plan being to make the bell clang yet not hear it herself. Her only trouble was the doubt whether the man coming was Martin. Suppose it was Pierre himself. Pierre sometimes crossed the moor at night. Pierre whistled. But it was all right, it was Martin, she saw that, when he had got opposite. He stopped his whistling then, bent his head, crossed his breast, in the vigour of his life, a young man just going to be married. Suddenly, dang, dang, clang for him. On her face she lay, watching him where he had dropped against one of the canyards. Then she stole away home, elated, thinking in herself, I didn't hear the bell sound, I didn't hear it. Well, Rosalie and Tissot waited in vain for Martin de Joy that night. It was not till five days later that his body was found at the bottom of that ravine north of the moor that is called Le Dé du Diablo. Whether he rumbled down there in his distraction or dashed himself down in his despair it is not known. But he was believed to have heard the bell, and it was years before anyone supposed that his death was not owing to an act of God. And so La Mère Gouvillon kept her word and Rosalie in a few months was married to Pierre. But, said my host in his Doric patois, it was never a good thing for la mère Gouvillon that she did what she had done. Rosalie was the worst wife that Pierre could have had, for she was so winning and sweet, and he loved her so much, that for months at a time he was a changed lad. And the result was this that there would ensue reactions, during which the white face of that little lame man became a fright in the valley, he going about like a dog with the hydrophobia, his eyes alight, once he stabbed his mother in the arm, and sometimes had to be watched, lest he should stab himself. And so it went on near five years, and they had misfortunes in the vineyard too. There came three bad years, and even l'Hermitage and La Nerte and the big vintages of Provence came to nothing, and the fourth year, La Mère Gouvignon's madder yield was a gone hope before May, and she had to sign a paper with the agent at Carniac, which almost compromised the shelter over her head. So she was not very happy in her mischief-doing after all. But she adored her petit, her little one, nevertheless gloried in secret over the deed she had done for him. And when he made himself a terror, she hugged herself, preferring terror to laughingstock. They won't grin with their ugly gums at my petit, my little one now, she'd say. And one bitter winter's night, all came to an end. Pierre had broken loose again. Screams reached even to the village from the Gouvignon vineyard 
and presently a girl came running down to the presbytere, saying that Rosalie would be killed. Heaven knows what really happened, for Rosalie was never seen again. So it is supposed that Pierre must have killed her, and that La Mer Gouvillon did away with her body somehow. But no body was ever discovered. So that all that part of the business remains a mystery. Mother Gouvillon, who raved out a great deal of what I am saying now, during her brief imprisonment afterwards, never said anything about this matter. However, when the curé hears this, he begins to pray, then saddles his mule and gallops off through the vale for Avignon. Before midnight a body of sergeants arrive at the vineyard. They search for Pierre. Pierre cannot be found. La Mère Gouvillon, sewing, with her mouth open square, tells them that she does not know where he has gone to. A wild night. I have seen three such in Provence, lightnings that terrify, a very deluge of water, tempest from the north calling to whirlwind from the west, a southern storm. Mother Gouvillon dashed out into it the moment she found herself free of the sergeants, forgot her uncovered head, but remembered to take every sou she possessed. She had arranged to meet Pierre out on the moor, the only safe meeting place, intending, it seems, to take or send him to the coast, to get him aboard the ship. Nothing would be impossible to her. The officers, it is true, were scouring the valley on horseback with lanterns, but they were nothing. She would outwit them. But when, on reaching the moor, she ran to the agreed cagnard, Pierre was not in it. To the next... Pierre not there, and with distracted runs she dashed from Cagnard to Cagnard. Her heart misgave her now. Her glance questioned the heavens, and they were black enough. And stumbling about within a tempest of hair, a pillar of seaweed that stumbles, she lifted her voice, Pierre, wayward boy of her heart, where then was he? And another terror struck her, the bell. It was believed to bleat some midnights when storms were abroad on the moor, but not to-night. And as she said this, a vaster tantrum of the tempest terrorized her. She stumbled and was down in the mud. A prayer broke from her. A night of climaxes of wind, and in the midst of each, the woman beseeching, coaxing, any other night, not to-night. It would not be right, would be hard on a poor mother's heart for hours, till the gale began to abate, and the danger ended. It was only toward morning, when, though the darkness was as black as ever, the storm had lulled and her dreads of the bell were at rest. It was then that all at once she heard it. Not a clamorous clang-clang this time, as when she had rung it for Martin de Joyy, but one tall only, floating out doleful on the breast of the trembling air. It was over then? No hope? Suddenly the woman threw up her head, gnashed, shook her fist, as her father before her had done, at the bell, at the heavens. Blast away, bell! Bells were nothing. She would discover her little one as soon as there was a little light, would tear him from the clutch of the sergeants. He would be all right yet. On setting out once more to search, she found herself just in front of the church. 
and as some sheet lightning was playing then, she chanced to observe the mark of a man's foot before the church portal. At this she started, chilled to the marrow by a sense of the supernatural, for it was not to be believed that any living being would have come so near the bell on a night so wild. Under her breath she muttered, Martin de Joilly, for what power had rung the bell in her hearing? It had not been the wind. Just then a tramp of horses' hooves reached her ears. The sergeant still ransacking the countryside for Pierre, and she ran into the bush at the church door, lest they might spy her in the play of the lightning. Five years before she had stood just there and done a thing, and now her flesh shivered to see the sarsaparilla, freshly trampled, the branches parted. Someone had entered San Sepulcro that night, and at the thought of the vengeance of the murdered dead, her heart turned faint. But some fascination led her steps over the threshold, and she stood in the still thicker gloom within, hearing the rasping of her own throat, hearing the gallop of a heart, thumping out the whole gamut of fright, pride, desperation, till, all at once, a blaze of lightning searched the church, and by it, was revealed to her the reason why the bell had rung. It was because someone had tied the bell rope round his throat, kicked away a stone, and hanged himself there. He hung still now, and eye to eye they looked, mother and son. They found her the next morning, wandering on the moor, harmless and listless, with a slanting smile and they took her to the asylum at Avignon, where, after many weeks, something resembling reason returned to her. When they had gathered her story from her mutterings, they let her out again, but she would not go home, took up her abode in the woods, etc., sleeping in canyards, living on olives, nuts, fruits. Her favorite haunt, if she still lives, is the men here, by the abandoned path between Le Brun Le Bruyere and Carniac. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Bell of Saint-Sepulcre by M.P. Scheel. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today 
at shopify.com slash records.